0: The divine poet sets out on this exalted principle. He puts it in front of the noblest poem in the world as a testimony both of his wisdom and his fate. It was as if he had said, I shall sing of numberless events, equally grand, entertaining and important, but I cannot begin to unfold them without laying down this as a first fundamental axiom, that though brought to pass by the instrumental agency of men, They were the fruit of God's determining will and of His all-directing providence. Neither are those minuter events, which seemingly are the result of chance, excluded from this law. Even those do not happen, but come to pass in a regular order of succession and at their due period of time. Cause proceeds from cause. The long train of things draws with it all events both public and private. Excellent is that of Sophocles. I am firmly of opinion that all these things and whatever else befall us are in consequence of the divine purpose. Whoso thinks otherwise is at liberty to follow his own judgment, but this will ever be mine. The longest ordo rurum mentioned by Seneca is what he elsewhere styles A perpetual implication of causes. This, according to Laterius, was called by the Stoics an involved or concatenate causality of whatever has any existence, for Armus is a chain or implicate connection agreeably to this idea. Christophius gives the following definition of fate. Fate is that natural established order and constitution of all things from everlasting, whereby they mutually fall upon each other in consequence of an immutable and perpetual complication. Let us examine this celebrated definition of fate. 1. He calls it a natural, meaning by nature the great Natura Prima, or God. For by some Stoics, God and nature are used promiscuously, but because the Deity must be supposed both to decree and to act with wisdom, intelligence, and design, fate is sometimes mentioned by them under the name of reason. Thus, they define fate to be the supreme reason whereby the world is governed and directed, or more minutely, thus, that reason whereby the things that have been were the things that are now have a present existence, and the things that are to be shall be. Reason, you see, or wisdom, in the deity is an antecedent cause, from whence both providence and inferior nature is derived. It is added in Strobius that Christopheus sometimes varies his terms, and instead of the word reason substitutes the words truth, cause, nature, necessity intimating, that fate is the true, natural, necessary cause of all things that are, and of the manner in which they are. 2. This fate is said to be from everlasting, nor improperly since the constitution of things was settled and fixed in the divine mind, where they had a sort of ideal existence, previous to their actual creation and therefore considered as certainly future in his decree, may be said to have been, in some sense, co-eternal with himself. 3. The immutable and perpetual complication mentioned in the definition means no more than that reciprocal involution of causes and effects from God downwards, by which things and events are necessarily produced according to the plan which infinite wisdom designed from the beginning. God, the first cause, has given being and activity to an immense number of secondary, subaltern causes, which are so inseparably linked and interwoven with their respective effects, a connection truly admirable and not to be comprehended by man in his present state, that those things which do, in reality, come to pass necessarily and by inevitable destiny seem to be the superficial observer to come to pass in the common course of nature or by virtue of human reasoning and freedom this is that inscrutable method of divine wisdom necessity is the consequence of fate so Tresmetius says all things are brought about by nature and by fate neither is any place void of providence Now providence is the self-perfect reason of the super-celestial God from which reason of his issue two native powers necessity and fate. Thus in the judgment of the wiser heathens effects were to be traced up to their producing causes. Those producing causes were to be further traced up to the still higher causes by which they were produced and those higher causes to God. The cause of them Persons, things, circumstances, events, and consequences are the effects of necessity. Necessity is the daughter of fate. Fate is the offspring of God's infinite wisdom and sovereign will. Thus all things are ultimately resolved into their great primary cause by whom the chain was originally let down from heaven and on whom every link depends. It must be owned that all the fatalists of antiquity, particularly among the Stoics, did not constantly express themselves with due precision. A Christian who is savingly taught by the word and spirit of God must be pained and disgusted, not to say shocked, when he reads such an assertion as this, God himself cannot possibly avoid his destiny. Or that of the poet Philemon, common men are servants to kings. Kings are servants to gods, and God is a servant to necessity. So Seneca says, The self-same necessity binds the gods themselves. All things, divine as well as human, are carried forward by one identical and overpowering rapidity. The supreme author and governor of the universe hath indeed written and ordained the fates, but having once ordained them, he ever after obeys them. He commanded them at first, for once, but his conformity to them is perpetual. This is without doubt very irreverently and very incautiously expressed. Whence it has been common with many Christian writers to tax the Stoics with setting up a first cause superior to God himself and on which he is dependent. But I apprehend these philosophers meant in reality no such thing. All they designed to inculcate was that the will of God and his decrees are unchangeable, that there can be no alteration in the divine intention, no new act arise in his mind, no reversion of his eternal plan, all being founded in adorable sovereignty, ordered by infallible wisdom, ratified by omnipotence, and cemented with immutability. Thus, Lucan says in this, not through any imbecility in God, or as if he was subject to fate, of which, on the contrary, himself was the ordainer, but because it is his pleasure to abide by his own decree. For, as Seneca observes, it would detract from the greatness of God, and look as if he acknowledged himself liable to mistakes, were he to make changeable decrees, his pleasure must necessarily be always the same, seeing that only which is best can, at any time, please an all-perfect being. A good man, as this philosopher, is under a kind of pleasing necessity to do good, and if he did not do it, he could not be a good man. It is a striking proof of magnanimous will to be absolutely incapable of changing, and such is the will of God it never fluctuates nor varies. But, on the other hand, were he susceptible of change, could he, through the intervention of any inferior cause, or by some untold combination of external circumstances, be induced to recede from his purpose and alter his plan. It would be a most incontestable mark of weakness and dependence, the force of which argument made Seneca, though a heathen, cry out, Outward things cannot compel the gods, but their own eternal will is a law to themselves. It may be objected that this seems to infer as if the deity was still under some kind of restraint. By no means. But Seneca obviates this cavil, as he effectually does in these admirable words. God is not hereby either less free or less powerful for he himself is his own necessity on the whole it is evident that when the stoics speak even in the strongest terms of the obligation of fate on God himself they may and ought to be understood in a sense worthy of the adorable uncreated majesty in thus interpreting the doctrine of fate as taught by the genuine philosophers of the portico I have the great St. Augustine on my side, who after canvassing and justly rejecting the bastard of astrological fate thus goes on. But for those philosophers, meaning the Stoics, who by the word fate mean that regular chain and series of causes to which all things that come to pass owe their immediate existence, we will not earnestly contend with these persons about a mere term and we the rather acquiesce in their manner of expression, because they carefully ascribe this fixed succession of things in this mutual concatenation of causes and effects to the will of the supreme God. Augustine adds many observations of the same import and proves from Seneca himself, as rigid a stoic as any, that this was the doctrine and the meaning of his philosophic brethren New chapter, page 161. The Predestination of Bohemianians. The reader may, if he pleases, consider himself as entered at present on a kind of historical voyage. Some people pretend to think that we are in full sail for Constantinople, and that predestination is at once the compass by which we steer. In the breeze by which we are carried, plump, into the Grand Senior's harbour. Predestination and the Ordo orderum are according to these sage, Armenian geographers, situate only in the latitude of Mohammed. In every man who believes with Scripture that God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, and with our church that all things, both in heaven and earth, are ordered by a never-failing providence, every man who thus believes is, in our adversary's estimation, a Mohammedan. I must acknowledge that such a contemptible cavil, as this is too low and ridiculous to merit a single moment's attention. However, as it has been urged formerly by the wretched authors of Calvino Terracumas and how repeated with an air of seeming seriousness by a modern Armenian, I beg permission to touch at Constantinople in earnest, not with a view to stay there for good, but just to look about us and determine for ourselves whether those of us who hold the Christian doctrine of predestination are to be classed among the Mohammedans. Dean Freidox shall set us on shore, this learned historian observes that the religion of the Mohammed is made up of three parts whereof one was borrowed from the Jews, another from the Christians, and the third from the heathen Arabs. A whole third then of the Mohammedan system is neither more or less than Christianity at second hand. But shall we therefore disclaim any article of our Christian creed because that article was adopted By Mohammed? What a prodigious gap such absurd conduct would make in our confession of faith may be easily judged of from the ensuing specimen. The first doctrine that Mohammed propagated among them, that is, among his followers at Mecca, was that there was but one God, and that he only is to be worshipped, and that all idols were to be taken away and their worship utterly abolished. He allowed both the Old and New Testament, in that Moses and Jesus Christ were prophets sent from God. They, that is, the Mohammedans, own that there are angels, executioners of God's commands, designed for certain offices both in heaven and earth. They believe a general resurrection of the dead. They hold both a general judgment and a particular one at death. If a person asks why God hath created the infidels and wicked, the answer is that we ought not to be over-curious to search into the secrets of God. The morals of the Mohammedans consist in doing good and shunning evil. The casuists hold that actions done without faith in God are sins. They forbid to judge of uncertain things because it does not belong to us to judge of the things which God has concealed from us. Their devotion extends even to the sacred names. When they pronounce the name of God, they make a bow and add most high, most blessed, most strong, most excellent, or some such epitaph. The Mohammedans tolerate all religions. They are commanded to pray at the appointed times, and to give alms. They hold a heaven and hell. Mohammed forbid adultery to his followers. They assert the immortality of the soul. Among the maxims of the Al-Qur'an are Forgive those who have offended thee. Do good to all. Now, would any reasonable Christian strike out these articles from his creed only because Mohammed has inserted them in his? And does it follow that the most respectable persons in the world who are influenced by these excellent principles of faith and practice are, for that reason, to be dubbed Mohammedans? But the plain truth is that our adversaries know no more of Constantinople than they do of Geneva and are equally unacquainted with the real systems both of Turkism and Christianity. Even a superficial survey of this subject would have sufficed to inform them that the questions relating to predestination and free grace have been agitated among the Mohammedans, doctors, with as much heat and vehemence as ever they were in Christendom. The Mohammedans have this sort of Armenians, no less than we. It is asked, How goes the stream of doctrines at Constantinople? I also can ask in my turn, how goes the stream at Ispahan? If the Mohammedan Turks of the sect of Omar believe in absolute predestination and providence, it is no less certain that the Mohammedan Persians of the sect of Heli deny predestination and assert free will, with as much outrageous fervor as any Armenian. But shall I from hence infer that they are Mohammedans? I cannot in justice pay the Mohammedans such a compliment. After all, there is not that conformity between the Christian and the Turkish doctrine of predestination which is asserted. And our Armenian consistory would have us believe. Do Mohammedans assert an election in Christ to grace and glory? Do they maintain that In the preordination of events, the means are no less preordained than the end? Do they consider the Son of God as joint agent with His Father in the providential disposure of all things below? Do they hold the eternal covenant of grace, which obtained among the persons of the Godhead, in behalf of and for the salvation of peculiar people, who shall by the regenerating efficacy of the Holy Ghost be made zealous of good works? Do the Mohammedans believe anything about final perseverance and the inadmissibility of saving grace, that is, the indefectibility? No such thing. I can easily prove their denial of these gospel doctrines whenever the proof shall be necessary. And even as to the predestination of temporal events, the disciples of Omar, so far as I can hitherto find, and unless their doctrine be greatly misrepresented, seem to have exceeding gross and confused ideas. They appear to consider predestination as a sort of blind, rapid, overbearing impetus, which, right or wrong, with means or without, carries all things violently before it, with little or no attention to the peculiar and respective nature of of second causes, whereas according to the Christian scheme, predestination forms a wise, regular, connected plan, and providence conducts the execution of it in such a manner as to assign their due share of importance to the correlative means, and secure the certainty both of means and end without violating or forcing the intellectual powers of any one rational agent. I have scrupled to enroll a particular opponent of mine, himself, on the list of Muslim men. Some of his tenets, however, are so nearly related to the worst branches of Mohammedan system that he might very readily be mistaken at first sight for a disciple of Heli. Survey the dark side of Mohammedanism, and you will almost aver that the portrait was intended for him. The Mohammedans would have us believe that he, namely Mohammed, was a saint from the fourth year of his age, for then, say they, the angel Gabriel took him from among his fellows while at play with them, and carrying him aside, cut open his breast and took out his heart, and wrung out of it that black drop of blood in which, say they, was contained the formus, so that he had none of it ever after, so much of Mohammed's sinless perfection. They hold it unlawful to drink wine and to play at chess, tables, cards, or such-like recreations. They esteem good works meritorious of heaven. Some will be honored for their abstinence in eating and drinking, sparingly and seldom. Some profess poverty and will enjoy no earthly things. Others brag of revelations, visions, and enthusiasms. Some are for traditions and merits by which, they suppose, salvation is obtained and not by grace. Besides the above articles, the Mohammedans hold that there is a third or middle place for the reception of some departed souls. They deny the perpetuity of faith, believing that whosoever renounces it loses the merit of all his good works in that during all that time he can do nothing acceptable to God until he hath repented and then he becomes a Muslim or faithful again. Their dervishes live a very retired and austere life going barefoot with a leathern girdle around their bodies full of sharp points to mortify the flesh. The Mohammedan bigotry is so excessive that they esteem themselves only to be wise, valiant, and holy. The rest of the world they look upon to be fools and reprobates, and use them accordingly. Among the followers of Mahomet, any person may be a priest that pleases to take the habit and perform the functions, and may lay down his office when he will, there being nothing like ordination amongst them. By this time the reader may judge whether the Church of England or our adversaries make the nearest approaches to Mahometism. New Chapter Page 165 The Predestination of the Papists It is asserted that Augustine and Aquinas were two champions for predestination, and their names have much weight in the Church of Rome. I am apt to think that such acquaintance, either with St. Augustine's writings or with those of Aquinas, is at best extremely slender. Whatever may be said for the truly admirable bishop of Hippo, it is certain that the ingenious native of Aquino was by no means a consistent predestinarian. He had, indeed, his lucid intervals, but if the Armenians should find themselves at a loss for quibbles, I would recommend to them a diligent perusal of that laborious hair-splitter who will furnish them in their own way with many useful and necessary quirks, without the assistance whereof their system had long ago lost its hold even on the prejudicial and superficial. Of all Aquinas' numerous writings, which are said to amount to seventeen folio volumes, I have only his Summa Theologic and his Commentaries on the Gospels and St. Paul's Epistles. To collect all the semi Pelagian passages, with which those two performances are fraught would be a task equally prolix and unprofitable. My citations, therefore, shall be few and short, but such as may suffice to invince that the scholastic Baptist does in many material points respecting the present argument shake hands from his grave with the younger brethren and modern Arminians. The Book of Life, says he, is the enrollment of those who are ordained to life eternal. Whoever is in present possession of grace is by virtue of that very possession deserving of eternal life. This ordination, however, sometimes fails, for some people are ordained to have eternal life by the inherent grace they possess, which eternal life they notwithstandingly come short of by the commission of deadly sins. They who are appointed to life eternal, not by God's predestination, but only through the grace they are partakers of, are said to be written in the book of life, not absolutely, but under certain limitations. Let me add a word from this author concerning justification, which he supposes to be synonymous with the infusion of grace. Free will, says he, is essential to the nature of man. Consequently, in that person who has the use of his free will, God worketh no motion unto righteousness without the motion of the man's free will. In his comment on the first epistle to Timothy, he thus asserts the merit of works. Spiritual treasure is no other than an assemblage of merits, which merits are the foundation of that future building which is prepared for us in heaven. For the whole preparation of future glory is by merit, which merits we acquire by grace. And this grace is the fountain of merit. Now, let any man judge whether this popish writer does not in these and similar passages speak the language of Pelagius, that he sometimes stumbles on great and precious truths cannot be denied. For this is the case let him have his due commendation but the least that can be said is that those of his laborious studies which I have met with abound with such astonishing self-contradictions as are only to be paralleled in some puny publications lately published in this matter so much for Thomas Aquinas next for the celebrated African bishop concerning whom it is said Augustine's writings are judged to confirm the popish doctrines so much that the effigy of that father is set with three others to support the papal chair. And suppose I was to make the effigy of Arminius serve as a leg to my chair, would it thence follow that I am an Arminian? As little it does follow that the doctrines of predestination asserted by Augustine is to receive doctrine of Rome only because the pope affects to sit on the shoulders of Augustine's wooden image. If my adversary has only such wooden arguments to urge, the interest of his dearly beloved Arminianism will be as ridiculously and as feebly supported as is the pope's chair. After all, what if none of the four supporting images should be really representative of St. Augustine. I am aware that the contrary has been affirmed by authority. Incomparably more creditable than that of Mr. Sellin, I therefore only start the query as a bare possibility, but were it even fact, it would not be the first mistake of the kind into which the holy infallible See has fallen. Witness the following famous instance. Till the year 1662, the bishops of Rome thought they had a pregnant proof of not only the St. Peter's erecting of their chair, but of his sitting in it himself. For till that year, the very chair on which they believed, or would make others believe, he, St. Peter, had sat, was shown and exposed to public adoration on the 18th of January, the festival of the said chair. But while it was cleaning, in order to be set up in some conspicuous place in the Vatican, the twelve labors of Hercules unluckily appeared to be engraved on it. Our worship, however, says, Giacomo Bartolin, who was present at this discovery and relates it, was not misplaced since it was not to the wood we paid it, but to the Prince of Apostles, St. Peter. And of footnote. The Pope's Chair by the Worm-Eaten Effigy. Is it true the system of grace maintained by Augustine is espoused by the Roman Church? Quite the reverse. The writers of that communion do, indeed, make very pompous use of St. Augustine's name and pretend to pay no little difference to his authority. But, with just as much sincerity as some of our Arminians profess to revere and vindicate the Church of England, Papus dazzle the vulgar, by the mention of St. Augustine, that the brightness of his name may render their apostasy from his doctrines imperceivable. With what propriety St. Augustine's image lends its shoulder to the Pope's haunch may be judged from the following brief sketch of Augustine's doctrine which I shall give in the words of the honest and learned Mr. Dupin. Sinners, says St. Augustine, sin violently and without compulsion, and they cannot complain that God hath denied them his grace, or the gift of perseverance, since he owes his grace to nobody. The historian goes on. He, Augustine, again insisteth upon the same matter, and upon the same principles in both the books which he writ the answer to Hilary's and Prosper's letters. The first is of the predestination of the saints, and the second of the gift of perseverance, wherein he demonstrates that the beginning of faith and good purposes is the gift of God, and that so our predestination or vocation doth not depend upon our merits. The second book concerns the gift of perseverance which he shows to depend equally on God, at the beginning of our conversion. St. Augustine composed these treatises in the year 429. St. Augustine's principles concerning predestination and reprobation do exactly agree with his opinion touching grace. Both those decrees according to him suppose the foreknowledge of original sin and of the corruption of the whole mass of mankind. If God would suffer all men to remain there, none could complain of the severity, seeing they are all guilty and doomed to damnation because of the sin of the first man. But God resolved from all eternity to deliver some whom he had chosen out of pure mercy without any regard to their future merits. And from all eternity he prepared for them that were thus chosen those gifts and graces which are necessary to save them infallibly, and these he bestows upon them in time. All those, therefore, that are of their number of the elect, hear the gospel and believe, and persevere in the faith working by love to the end of their lives. If they chance to wander from the right way, they return and repent of their sins, and it is certain that they shall die in the faith of Jesus Christ footnote. These citations demonstrate the justness of Mr. Biles following remark. It is certain, says the shrewd, perspicacious writer, that the engagement which the Church of Rome is under to respect St. Augustine's views cast her into a perplexity which is very ridiculous. It is manifest to all men who examine things without prejudice and with sufficient abilities that Augustine's doctrine and that of Gensinius are one and the same, so that we cannot without indignation behold the court of Rome boasting to have condemned Gensinius and yet to have preserved St. Augustine in all his glory. These are two things altogether inconsistent. More than this, The Council of Trent in condemning Calvin's doctrine of free will did necessarily condemn that of St. Augustine, for no Calvinist ever denied or can deny the concurrence of the human will in the liberty of the soul in that sense which St. Augustine has given to the words concurrence, cooperation, and liberty, so that when they, the Papists, boast of having St. Augustine's faith, it is only meant to preserve a decorum and to save this system from the destruction which the sincere confession of the truth must necessarily occasion. End of footnote. Let the reader but compare the above summary of St. Augustine's doctrine with the determinations of the Council of Trent, and he will at first view perceive how little stress is to be laid on the Pope's reposing his loins upon St. Augustine's effigy while he tramples the leading doctrines of that predestinarian saint underfoot. Footnote. This is evident among other proofs from the following instance. Some of St. Augustine's works concerning grace and against free will are actually under the black mark of the Romanish index for the knowledge of which I am indebted to the information of Seth and the footnote, and anathematize all who embrace them. This is the end of the book.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.